Good morning, everybody. It's a big wake up here at SF Music Tech. I'm Ty Roberts, and I'm here to go through the discovery panel. We're going to first discover how we wake up. I hope all of you have had some coffee. We have an amazing group of panelists here today, and I'm very excited to talk about discovery because this is how we get new music and new ideas into the hands of the consumers who love these music services and love experiencing music. The problem's been, though, that Discovery's had a little bit of a bad name. So actually today, what I want to start first is just have the panelists quickly introduce themselves, and then we'll come back and, and start the questions. So Ethan, kick off. Yeah, I'm Ethan Kaplan. I'm uh, the head of product and technology at Live Nation, working on the Live Nation Labs division. I <coughs> uh, used to be the head of technology at Warner Brothers Records. Shane Tobin with the Echo Nest. I handle strategic partnerships. We're a music data platform, and uh, we use that data to help uh, make products better uh, across music services. I'm John Irwin. I'm the president at Rhapsody. We're an on-demand subscription music service. I'm Eric Bischke at Pandora. I'm the guy who figures out how to make all your stations as awesome as possible. Katie McMahon from Soundhound Inc., which is music search and discovery. And I'm responsible on the getting product to market, uh, user growth, and all the revenue stuff. All right. Well, great. Let's have a, a round of applause for those panelists. <laughs> okay. So let's start out first. Uh, we'll go to Ethan first. Ethan, why do we need discovery? What is discovery and what's, what's going on with it? It's become a pejorative term in terms of investment, in terms of startups. San Francisco Music Hack Day was yesterday. I think half of them were discovery services. I always argue that Discovery started with, with radio, essentially. If you look at historically, people found out about music through radio, and it hasn't really changed too much. Uh, and I look at the two biggest music services out there for, that actually drive revenue in terms of music, which is Google from, through YouTube and Apple through iTunes. And Discovery is not a huge part of the fabric of any of both of those services. So, you know, when I approach music discovery, it's like the 10% to the 90% problem. 90% of people get music through the same means they always did, just through different platforms. 10% are always looking for a different thing to discover, go deeper. And that's the part that it's interesting to address in that case. So in your, in your world, awareness is bigger than discovery because that leads to people finding out about things maybe through advertising or word of mouth or other things. And that's dwarfs, let's call it, just a tool that someone clicks on inside of an application. Yeah, I mean, in reality, people aren't spending more time or more money on music than they used to. It's always good. To, it's trending lower. So awareness is always the thing that is going to drive any of the, you know, the top 10% of what the market is. Discovery is a, a lot less in terms of getting out of just mass market awareness. Okay, so I'm going to go now to maybe a little bit off. I know that obviously people are in environments where they have to actually, you know, figure out what a piece of music, they hear something somehow, they're driving in their car, they're in an airport, they're at a club. And so, you know, one area I want to start with also is just talking about the different ways that people might discover music and maybe look at some, some areas there. So I'm going to go to Katie at the end and talk a little bit. Can you talk a little bit about, I'll call it environmental discovery. That's a completely different plan inside the music service. Yeah, no, sure. Well, at the heart of having SoundHound on a mobile device and other music recognition services, it is the functionality of being able to discover wherever you are, simply by capturing that sound nugget from the speaker, looking at the palm of your hand, and suddenly you're told the name of the song, the artist, in some cases have live lyrics engage you further into that experience. So certainly discovery is now a ubiquitous experience. You, you don't have to be at a certain moment and write, write something down after the DJ says it on the radio to remember. You can grab it, capture, use it immediately, or come back to it later. 
But to dovetail a little bit on what Ethan was mentioning, uh, circumstantial, the Super Bowl is a great example of how people are still engaging with music content. So, right, that, the halftime show, Beyonce. Everyone knew it was Beyonce. So you didn't particularly need a music discovery tool to find out the name of that artist. But we saw a 250% uh, engagement spike from viewers sound hounding that moment in order to find out which exact song that was or which album that one was on and to go further. And I think that's pretty interesting how it parlays not just from a matter of like, what's this new tune I'm listening to, but actually an ease of functionality and onward tools that you can access. I mean, it definitely is an area where technology today, I mean, still today, people can hum into these applications now, they can tap into these applications, they can to, to recognize music in the environment. We still don't have good live music recognition, which is something that would be for most technologists here on the panel. It's a big challenge to figure out, but something that we we're working on, hoping to figure out. Hopefully next year, at, at, yes, at Music Tech, someone's figured that out. Maybe what I'll do now is I want to just go briefly to John and talk a little bit about, okay, so in the world of Rhapsody, in the world of your services, you have a, I think, First of all, one of the longest running services, largest user base, more than 10 years of information. You know, how are people discovering music inside your world and what's actually happening that's successful there? Well, I think we said it, we talked in the, in the green room back there about trying not to use the word discovery and uh, whether it's a pejorative term or not. It's the way we've tried to focus and evolve our experience for our customers. How do we make the experience you know, the greatest experience, the coolest experience for somebody while they're listening to music? And then utilities such as using song identification, like a, a SoundHound, we now have a song match app that you can, you can identify songs in, environmentally. And, but it's what you do after that. It's what you do with that song. So as, as Katie mentioned, you can look up lyrics, right? We're tying our identified songs into now similar artists or other albums that are tied to that and then giving them the chance to move into that experience and then integrating that identification point with the, with the service itself. So it's automatically added to a playlist so you can listen to it again later, right? So you can tie that song, whether it was Beyonce at the Super Bowl. So that's one utility. The way we look at creating these experiences to allow people to find new music that they may enjoy, you know, we look at it in really four key ways. We have algorithmic recommendations, right? We know what music's like another, and you can have a, you, know, you can tie systematic recommendations in there. We have radio. That's the number one way people discover music, and you know, a fantastic way still to do that. Social has been very big all the way through, right? In now people are, you can share music. The risk with that is who are, you know, your friends may not have the same music taste. The fourth one that Rhapsody and Ty, you mentioned, we've been around for over 11 years now. Um, we've always focused on combining a very strong programming and editorial component to our service and integrating that with the algorithmic recommendations. So that creates a canvas for people as they're using the service. They will come across, they will have an experience that suits their mood that day that captures a feeling where they say, that is a song I want to save, that is a song I want to keep in my library, I want to add that, I've, I've now curated my library to, a, to another level. So it's not just one way. It's those, you know, those, four, those four key prongs of discovery we, we focus on. Uh, thank you. I think you know, what I would say there is that the, the idea that some of the music services integrate this music 
you know, discovery service right into their service. I think that's a great idea because people then don't have to run a second application. It gets them straight from what they want to more of what they want. And then I also like what Katie said about the, getting the lyrics. You know, it's actually not get the music application, it's get the lyrics for the music I'm listening to application, which is kind of an also a really great function as well. I might, might go more down the automated route with Shane. Why don't you talk a little bit about how you guys see profiling the users and more of a automated and I'll call it intelligent way to, to kind of try to figure out what consumers really like in music. Sure, so you know, a lot of people came to us and, and they, you know, they had a huge catalog that they wanted to know more about. They had 15 million tracks, they saw the great success that Pandora has had and made it so easy for users to be able to just put in an artist name or a song name and, uh, and have a personalized experience. And you know, that's an expectation these days for music listeners. They want to have that easy experience where they can quickly find a station that's personalized for them. And so you know, for us, we were helping a lot of services to kind of get to that point where they understood a very large catalog pretty quickly. Where we kind of see things moving forward is that if we know more about you and what your music identity is, we can do a much better job connecting you with other users, other playlists that are existing out on these services that are specifically suited to you. And I think that's an important thing is if we know who you are and your identity, you know, we're going to give you a better experience in these services. I mean, back in the day, you walked into your favorite record store and you had your guy there and he'd help you and he'd show you what the new releases are. We kind of you know, we, we kind of have to hunt and, and crawl for those types of recommendations today. So a lot I of the I miss that guy with the pink hair and the earring. I, I don't, that guy's not around anymore. I mean, if you live here, you're lucky enough to have Amoeba and, and, and LA, and there's, there's still a few great stores like that. But, you know, what we really want to do is to help translate that online as well. I think, you know, if we go a little bit more down the, you know, Pandora obviously has a, a you know, very rich database, probably the, the most rich in terms of individual parameters per song and very editorial driven model for how to get detailed information on songs. And the question is, you know, how does that really work? You talked about giving people the best music channel of their life, Eric. Tell us a little bit more about how, how that works and why you, what you said to me in the back was that you didn't feel that it was discovery happened automatically kind of with your system. So maybe say something about that. Yeah, I, I uh, really liked what Shane said about personalization. Discovery really is a personal moment for people. One of our advantages, we've got more like than a billion listening hours a month, huge amounts of data from every single person about what they like and what they don't. Some of it, they tell you directly, they create a station, they tell you they love whatever their favorite band is. Some of it they just show you by how frequently do they come back to your service. There's a huge and growing amount of like overwhelming amount of user data we can use like Echonus does to build models for people, truly understand their tastes and then connect them uh, with the music they love. The tricky part I think on the, with like editorial approaches is that it's sort of like inherently depersonalized because in some sense it's got to be a little bit broadcast in order to to have an editorial voice. We've taken a, a very strong stance on the other end of the spectrum where we're trying to find the perfect discovery moments for each and every person individually. We kind of, and we sort of have no editorial voice sort of very intentionally. <laughs> Which you do a little bit, you have a, a more of a factual, you know, you're doing it from the, from the back, back room saying this is a certain type of music or a certain feeling. Yeah, and, and we come at it from two ends. We both got an incredibly rich, um, 
understanding of the music through the Music Genome Project, and then we also have an incredibly rich understanding of our listeners through the data they're creating by using Pandora, which sort of just sort of self-perpetuates. I mean, it's, it's, it's also fairly obvious, like you said, uh, John, in the, in the music services, somehow it's a mixture of all these things. It's the explicit and the implicit of what the users vote. It's the things, the social. It's then what they actually search for themselves, and somehow that's come up with a pretty good starting point, I guess what I'd say, for, for something for them. You know, one of the things I want to talk a little bit about is that we do have an issue in, in the world, maybe in, in America and the world, which is that the average person today knows a lot fewer artists. Like, the average person knows between 10 and 20 artists. That's it, okay? There we used to be a time, that might have been 40 artists. That was when there were better, I'll call it mass discovery mingles, like radio wasn't talk, radio was music, and also there were things actually like MTV, as much as it's belittled, that did play a lot of different music videos. And the reality is, you know, what is the, you know, how do we help you know, build a better ecosystem? Is that our job to try to like, build something that consumers enjoy more? You know, is it our job to broaden their taste? Is it our job to introduce new artists and not just promote the archetypical artists? You know, how, do we, how do we do some of that? And I'm just gonna open that question up to anybody who might wanna answer. I think it's absolutely our job to, we owe it to people to help them find music they love. That's the thing I call discovery. Why wouldn't we? Like, that's all upside. It's like people love more music. It's all upside for everybody. Someone will make more money. I'm glad for them too, and I'm mostly excited about getting people to find things they don't know, and then you can show it to them, and then they know. So I, I think it's absolutely our obligation to do this. Yeah, I don't, I don't think the job has changed fundamentally <laughs> from what it was. I mean, back in the 80s, you had zines, you had you know, college radio, you had record stores with you know, the... the long stringy haired guy behind the counter that would hand you the replacements record and tell you which Snidely age you like. hands you the recording. So I mean, <laughs> I don't think it's changed fundamentally. I just think that w what takes people's attention has diversified. If you were bored in the 80s, you went to a record store. If you're bored today, you can pick up a supercomputer in your pocket and go on Reddit and look at memes. So, <laughs> you know, it, it's like it's what, what takes off the, the, the leisure time is not as much music as it was prior, and the competition for that time and for that money is, is, a, lot, is a lot more diverse at this point. So, I mean, I, I don't think the job fundamentally of what we do has changed, it's just become different people doing those jobs. Uh, music discovery is no longer your record store clerk, it's automated algorithms and computer science nerds with machine and, learning and I think expertise. it could also be said for the, the structure of the different you know, music services that are out there, different platforms, you know, the Rhapsody and Pandora platforms are easier for discovery because the penalty of playing something you didn't like is nothing. Like, it's the 10 seconds that you spent playing it before you decided you didn't like it versus, I'd say, iTunes, we have to buy every track. It's a pretty high penalty to be, you know, experimenting with 100 different songs in iTunes is a pretty heavy $100 commitment. And yeah, so I mean, that's why Apple invests so much in editorial versus discovery. You know, they have a, a right. lot of editorial staff at Apple, a lot right. of ex-music journalists and label people, and... and right. Their job is to get you something that you should like automatically and not just have you fool around that much. But the problem is that leads to a fairly hits-driven model in a certain way. I mean, I think it, uh, that also goes to the point, though, that you know, music is not a math problem. Like, we're not here trying to plug in our computers to figure out music. That's not the way it works. It has to be informed from a human element. Our whole, basically the way that our, 
recommendations work on the contextual side is by understanding what humans have to say. And I think that's an important point to make because a lot of the times, you know, when we're talking about discovery or we're talking about recommendations, a lot of people just say, oh, we're plugging in an algorithm, we're plugging in some math and that's the way it's gonna work. And, it, and it, obviously, it can't be informed just by a math problem. This has to speak to you as a fan and it has to come from uh, it, what we know about music collectively. Um, and so if we can build better products built on top of that and we can understand you and understand like, here's specific tastes that you have in music, here's how adventurous you are, um, we start to do a better job at presenting results that are gonna make you happy and make you a better music fan. And I think that's probably all of our goals up here is that we all want people to engage more around music. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing about calling discovery a problem, which I see a lot of in, in, in some, you know, music presses, that, that implies that it has a solution. And you would think if it had a solution, the company that has cars driving themselves up the 280 would have, would have solved it if it was strictly a math problem. Um, it's, it's not, I mean, discovery, it's a, it's a holy grail in the sense that there is never a solution to it, where the labels think of discovery as a way of getting a small band that they just signed to be as popular as Fun and Gautier were last year. Um, but you know, there, there's no solution to that problem other than adapting to the climate as it exists today. And that climate just changes week to week. No one, no one thought that you, a, a YouTube cover video could have broken a band, um, and last year it did. John, you had something? Yeah, I think the, the, I, the idea of the you know, blending the human element versus the pure algorithm and where, where that line falls. There are times when people are listening to music, when they want to listen to music, they do want to just go and listen to the radio. Right. You get in the car, you put on an FM station, you put on Sirius XM, you tap in, you may launch a Pandora station, and that's the way you want to discover that, right? There's also times where if I can, if I can open up my iPad and I can launch uh, a service and get into an experience that gives me a feed of music that is informed by an algorithm. Not just music, not just saying this algorithm says you like, you've listened to these songs, now you might like this song, right? But you listen to these songs, you might like these songs. Here's some uh, video features that talk about that artist that you've been listening to and other music they like and creating a variety of experiences that you know, have that human element, but targeted at a specific taste profile. Very important to be able to, you know, you're starting in the right neighborhood and you branch out from there. And then discovery just happens. Right, you're talking about a, also a kind of a, a multimedia experience. And, Correct. You know, I, I mean, I know with a lot of our custom, Grayson's customers, which are a lot of the companies that are out there, the, the sophistication for what they wanted has really improved. They're really looking for this multi, partially because of the success of YouTube we talked about, but a multimedia discovery experience. And it's not just, hey, here's a song. It's, here's a song, here's a video, here's some text, here's a blog you should read, here's a writer that you might actually like, which is a challenge to build a database of writers, I can tell you that. But anyways, it is, it is a very interesting thing to see the evolution of the sophistication of the consumers and the people making these platforms, and that's really good. Because a few years ago, frankly, we were like in competition with like a random number generator. They were like, make this discovery thing better. It was like, that's not have any, that's terrible. Why would I compete against that? So I'm hoping that these things really improve. Um, one thing I do want to ask about just, just briefly is about the adventuresomeness of users. And so maybe you guys could talk about, do we have people who are broad musical tastes and people who have very narrow musical tastes? And how do we serve those? Or how do you describe those? 
Sure, I, you know, that's a big part of what we're doing and what, where we see the future, at least for personalization, is understanding your musical identity and saying, you know, if we can figure out that you're interested in 1950s jazz only, then, you know, we can do a much better job, you know, cluing you into more music by, you know, Dexter Gordon or John Coltrane. Um, but if you're a little bit more adventurous and, you know, you say you're coming to the service for the first time in like, you know, 15 years, you've had kids and you haven't been back to listen to music and you turn on, you know, uh, Ramblin' Man by the Allman Brothers, well, maybe there's a chance you might like Alabama Shakes, and, but we can tell like how adventurous your taste is once you start to use the service a bit more uh, and, and start giving some inputs into what uh, you like and what you don't like. I think, you know, understanding the user in that way is going to be important into you know how we can create personalized recommendations because if you're not that adventurous, then there's no reason to you know put that um, that track on that's right. a bit more obscure, and this you're going to have a bad result. One of the, one of the problems person. with proper radio playlisting is this figuring this out, especially for a new user. We don't know a lot yet because yep. you know if you they t type in Led Zeppelin, it better start with Led Zeppelin. But then you have DMCA rules if you're in Pandora's world, or maybe you do, don't have that. You only get a couple songs of Led Zeppelin. Okay, what's next? Well, I got to play something. Maybe I'll play a cover of somebody of Led Zeppelin song, or somebody influenced by Led Zeppelin. Should I go outside the norm of something they should like automatically? I got to play the Allman Brothers or somebody new. And as soon as they hear that, they go, I don't know, like that. They, they kill that. Then what do you do next? Oh my goodness, like I didn't like that. Now I got to jump to something. All right, we're back to something they should like right away. Because if you don't please them relatively soon, they'll quote change the channel. They'll turn off that channel, they'll go do something else potentially. So it's a tricky bit to try to write software that real-time generates a positive experience for consumers actually interacting with you. Well, and Ty, I think that goes back to what John was referencing in terms of the, the modality of the user. Like, am I in sit back, almost TV want to watch experience, right. just turn on a radio dial, or am I in a, I got to get something I'm going to be satisfied with instantaneously, or am I just about exploration right now? And I think it's hitting that, and that overlay is not something that instantaneously, when I enter a search field, and perhaps this speaks to Ethan, your point is we're not seeing the major giant of search nail discovery, but the, the point of having music voyeurism as an experience I think we all know it's there. You know, we have, we have this map feature, and you can zoom in to, to San Francisco and spread it wider and wider and wider, and you can see literally what someone is, is discovering right here, right now, and, and drill further. But you know what? I can't do that if I've got to have a meeting in two minutes and need to prep for it. It's all about You that. shouldn't be doing that while driving, you, you probably. Correct, correct. Yes, it's, don't. <laughs> it's like a balance of the music to watch dishes to versus, you know, really wanting to engage in that conversation with the comic book nerd, right? Like... Sometimes you do want to know who influenced this record, who influenced this record, who influenced this one. And sometimes you just want music to watch dishes to. And, and sometimes when, they, when it becomes too intermixed, you end up with what I see as the most common kind of algorithmically caused problem, at least for me, which is the mean time to How Soon Is Now by the Smiths. Like every music discovery service, it's like five songs until I hit How Soon Is Now from starting on any given artist that I like. <laughs> and so, that, that, I mean, that's like a quantified metric I use to just measure because that's trying to strike too much of a balance, right? Something that that's I'm a, going to that's avoid That's a very, very classically known problem is they call, they call it the super popular artist or the super influential artist. And so it's like you play one jazz song, it's like, you should get Miles Davis. Well, you don't need right. my thing, whatever it is, to recommend Miles Davis to you. And if you listen to 80s college rock, you're always going to get the Smiths somewhere. Right, exactly. <laughs> so that's the problem, which yeah. is, you know, 
what do we call that? It's like haircut recommendation or something, or tie, tie recommendation. Just, we'd almost just do it by clothing style. It doesn't really matter. Right. <laughs> okay, well, maybe we could talk a little bit about, about I wanted uh, to talk a little bit about other trends that are out there. Obviously, we're in America, we're influenced by international trends in music. We were talking a little bit in the back about like this Gautier thing, and so maybe should we talk a little bit about how the United States, in some genres, trails or leads, I don't know, and how do, how, how do any of these services, I'm not sure if any of them really do this, take a trend internationally and apply it to the US? It's not yet really been done yet, I don't think. So, uh, Pandora's in New Zealand, Australia, and the US, and we're starting to get large amounts of data about um, these music flows. And absolutely, there's a huge opportunity for discovery arbitrage where right. you can see like, oh look, the you know, like electronic music flows this way, rock music flows in a different way. Um, there's definitely something to be leveraged by probably all of us there around exploiting that flow of music love. I, I just think it's it's we're seeing right now is we've, uh, Rhapsody originally was um, US only. We're now over in Europe and we're gonna be expanding into additional territories within Europe. I think the one constant we see now is with the state of technology is blurring those lines, you know, international borders and the ability for music tastes now to flow across borders is, uh, it's much easier. It can happen much faster. Right. So, so whatever. Elim eliminating that grip of, we'll call it national, some of those countries still have national radio. Right which is yeah. pretty limiting. Right. <laughs> so the challenge becomes, as we, and what was interesting is we approached this from going over and providing our, our genre trees and localizing the service for a specific country. Uh, and our, our programming team going, oh, well this is, you know, this is our genre tree here. What the, what's a great genre tree and break down to subgenres in the United States isn't over in Germany, perhaps. Schlager music doesn't percolate up to the top in the US necessarily. Right. So you, it's, it's finding this balance of creating the service so that you have the genre tree, you localize the service so it's meaningful and powerful and creates a great experience for the local market. Those trends can develop, but then the technology itself, because it's the internet, it's going to make itself, it's going to make its way across, across I mean, borders. One of the very first things that, that we did was, you guys probably go to the record store and see this category called world music, you know? When you go to Japan, they don't have world music. They're like in the world. Okay, so like that's a weird thing that's only in America because we put everybody that's else in the world in an area of a store, which then translated to, frankly, iTunes. And some of these stores had, we were like, people in Japan were like, I have to find my Japanese music under World Music Japan inside iTunes. That's crazy. So we helped change that. I'm sure most music services here are more involved than that. But that is an example of, uh, I'll call it, a, Anglophile or Americanophile thinking, let's say. I mean, I think the biggest thing about international is, you know, there is different windowing strategies for international, as we know. There's different licensing for different international services. Um, the most interesting thing from the data piece, because I do sit on, you know, with the big champagne guys every day, five feet behind me every day, um, <laughs> is the, 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 the degree to which the U.S. often leads uh, under the surface with, you know, very narrow correlation to very early music discovery. Um, and then follows on, on, on the, <coughs> the hits. Like the Gautier track's an interesting example. It was a smash in Australia, Germany, and UK and while it was on NPR in the US. Uh, and it didn't bubble over in the US until the YouTube phenomenon that hit. And like seeing electronic music and seeing the, the rise of EDM and which follows on from international but was led by US 
it, it's interesting to see the flows between there because they're still as, as, as broad as we are internationally. Um, we're still in an embargoed environment, especially when it comes to, to digital music. Things are not cleared for ex-US, things are cleared for US. Some, com uh, some countries have a minimum of national, you know, of, of domestic music like ca uh, Canada. So it's just kind of an interesting data flow to see. And I think as we get more transparency into the data that um, the different music services are providing XUS, um, and as we get more XUS-led um, music services like Spotify and Deezer, uh, it's going to be an interesting case to put that all into the mix and see what kind of comes out of it. Yeah, I mean, I think the current events also have a massive influence on this. Obviously, we know when an artist passes away, suddenly there's a big peak in interest in there and their work. And I doubt any, I'm not sure, you know, yes, maybe, okay, iTunes or Macy's, we move a Michael Jackson thing to the homepage and, you know, that's what you do. But I doubt the algorithms are out there watching the news services yet and really pulling stuff that's related to current events up, which could actually be very interesting, especially if it's related to the lyrics or what the message no, of the song. I mean, I, I argue that does happen, though. Like, if you look at the Google, Google traffic to anybody that may have SEO relevance to any artist name. Like when Beyonce was on the, the Super Bowl, um, we had nothing to do with Beyonce on the Super Bowl other than she announced her tour right afterwards. But uh, the Grammys and the Super Bowl, if you looked at our site traffic on Live Nation, it one-to-one -one correlated with who was appearing on television at any given moment. Whether or not we had any shows for them. Mumford & Sons had no new shows announced, but the artist page was still out trending the second they hit the stage of the Grammys. So I think that you know, we, we've normalized all media around Google, right. essentially, and how good at SEO any given provider is related to any given artist. So, you know, if you look at search volume against an artist's name, it correlates to any media appearance. And then, of course, the, the, the offshore lyric sites and every, all the, uh, you know, made for Google AdSense sites that deal with music have so all So it's your marketing music, TV, 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 TV. TV, 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 radio, and tabloids, <laughs> essentially. Funny how that's still the same. Um, back, back to the uh, international topic. I feel like we shouldn't talk about international without mentioning Gangnam Style. Yeah. So, like, that was a discovery moment for lots of people who had literally had no idea what K-pop was. Um, and, like, I think about, like, the, you mentioned Gautier and Fun for, like, kind of, big things last year, a lot of the big discovery, mainstream discovery hits are these international things like Gangnam Style, like Gautier. Um, so there's clearly something there. I think it also kind of um, demonstrated that like discovery moments happen for a lot of different reasons. One is it's just like culture, culture shock in an interesting way can be a cool discovery moment. Um, and they look very different in different territories. So like, a dis you know, the culture in New Zealand, it has different cultural Im impacts there. Like Gangnam Style hits New Zealand in a different way for different audiences than it does in the US. Um, you know, that, that, that's a, the cultural trends of that also. Also there's, you know, music is used to market lots of things. So another thing that we don't, consider necessarily is, you know, what, frankly, what beer brands are marketing, what music are backing different festivals. You know, I'm watching car commercials, you know, I, I'm never sure when a car commercial comes on, Bob Dylan's going to get out one year and I don't know, Mick Jagger's going to get out the next. So the reality is, is that, that that does also have an impact on things as well because anything that causes people to kind of have a, 
rejuvenated interest to go just check something out, to go search or touch, touch the thing. Once they touch the computer or touch the phone and start looking for music, then they're going to be into an experience that we can do something with. And so, you know, helping make sure that we get people to actually do that, I think, is a really important thing versus pick up Facebook or whatever else they might do. We've been able to, ex um, we've been able to experiment along those lines, Ty, in a very in somewhat non-commercial sense by taking artists that haven't signed yet, therefore the um, hurdles of international rights and where you can play a song or, or um, put it out there. Because as we, we, we've taken our SoundHound button and, and made it a little smaller in the real estate, that's still the functionality, hold it up and discover. But you can now look in and see a song stream or a breaking new artist that, well, we'd like to say we could break an artist. We had Mumford's new, uh, new album the, the, the week it was released. But Megan Keeley, for example, a local artist right in the Bay Area, uh, has her own global rights, right? We didn't have to go to Sony in Japan to be able to turn this on as a song stream inside of Soundown Japan. And my point here is to show some, somewhat the serendipity of how different nations or communities react to that. Her Twitter sphere bubbled up with um, shares in Brazil. Why? I don't know. Maybe there are a lot of other variables, but it's just an interesting <laughs> thing there. There wasn't an Anheuser-Busch commercial featuring Megan Keeley at the same time in Brazil, but suddenly you're able to see, wow, for a week, her song stream is right there, one tap. The whole globe is able to listen to this, and for some reason, certain people were immediately sharing that and bubbling it out. That's great. So a question. Do we have microphones that we can use to take some questions from people? I don't know if the... PA guys are ready for that. Have we got that? Let's see there. We're usually the first panel. Doesn't ah, we do. So, um, does anyone have a question for the panel? I'd like to take a couple right here in the, the front row there. Just say your name and then just ask a question. Hey, I'm Paul from Digital Music News, and um, Ty, I had a question for you. You mentioned something really interesting about um, the average fan only knowing between 10 and 20 artists, and is that something you're just sort of anecdotally noticing or is that something that that's referencing some study it's it's something that people talk, it's not like that we have a statistical sample for that but it's it's uh -huh. people know a lot less artists in general and part of this is it may be and also you have to think about it, it's not us in this room because we're all in the business it's more like i hate to say it you know people in a slightly different age category maybe a little bit older or it seems as though the message of lots of different diverse artists is lost upon them and they're losing track of what artists are important to them faster. And, you know, Ethan probably talked a little bit about this, but it's, it really is, it's something to do with the fact that music's become very diverse. You know, it used to be easier because it, there was the Rolling Stones, there was U2, and there was David Bowie. Yeah. But now there's 1,500 or 5,000, you know, medium popular bands, and that, for a lot of people, is hard to track. And I think that's one issue of that. It's, like, it's an issue also because of just the exponential growth of media at our fingertip at the macro level. So during right. the day, yeah. if you double tap or look on your, on your phone bar, how many of those apps have you used in the last 24 hours to consume different types of content and media in general versus what you would have done 15 years ago? Which is all and that's an order of magnitude, yeah. and I think the correlation yeah. you're, there is... You're more in touch with your 300 music Facebook fans. Music able to squeeze you know. into it as much. <laughs> well, the, okay, so this is, this is so crazy because there's, there's so much more selection, so, but yet less engagement, as you mentioned, and... It's so mind-blowing, but Ethan, you mentioned that there's less engagement. Did I hear you correctly? Yeah. With, with, do you have any stats or information to back that up? 
Well, no statistics. But no, I mean, think about it logically, right? If we're in 2013, the difference between a friend and a band is, is, is inconsequential in terms of how it's represented on your screen. So if you look at overall music, you know, if you look at the, 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 the media landscape in terms of, of how we engage with media, the, the differentiation between the actual medium, what is carrying, the, where, what, is carrying what we're watching or listening to, uh, it's all self-normalizing at this point, right? Music, your friends on Facebook, something on Reddit, a video, it doesn't have any difference. It's harder to drive loyalty to anything that has no differentiation from anything else. Yeah. I think you should be, we should be careful there. I think you're, you're grabbing at you know, a very interesting, I, I already see this getting tweeted out. There is no more engagement in music. Ah, everyone end the conference today, right so now. I should delete that tweet. That <laughs> um, and let's just look through. Um, what, what you used to do when you bought an album and you'd run home and you would, with a cassette, right, you'd pull that leaf out and you'd bloop, 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 you'd open up and you would first delight in the typography. And oh, wasn't it cool when they actually kind of quasi hand wrote that lyric? And you would spend hours and then a little flutter like, oh, I have a crush on this guy and wouldn't yeah, this lyric that, that just hasn't nail existed it? for 22 years. So, no, 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 I think you're really wrong there, actually. It does, just, just for Justin Bieber, unfortunately. And the, the reimagination of lyrics has absolutely the potential to dive you back in and have you immersed and engaged in that music. And I really think lyrics in particular, and we've seen this across companies and different differentiators of that lyrics experience, get you to lean back in. Because we went through t 10 years of just instant music, I'm playing, I got it. It's it, it, you are, you are right. I mean, I, I do talk about this a lot, which is that, you know, when digital music came about, since we were the guys that helped make a lot of this come about, the first iPod was a black and white liquid crystal screen with text. So the music experience, regardless of all the packaging and all the wonderful stuff, it came to, you got sound and text. And a little bit of text, not a lot of text. And so that music experience went down to that. I, I just think there's, it's a red herring, like, to Paul's point. Um, engagement in music is a bit of like a kind of contentious red herring to actually use as a, as a gauge for, for what music is. Because music used to be, well, 22 years ago, you know, a CD or a, a tape or something that you actually held in your hand. It's not that people are less engaged in music, it's just that music exists in far more forms than it used to. But I, but I would say this, we've done a poor job as an industry at making the experiences rich compared to the richness of Facebook, the richness of other mediums that have done well. Uh, I don't know, I disagree. I think some of the, the best user interface design, some of the best UX paradigms emerge from, from the digital music space. I mean, if you look at what, what RDO's done with their latest design, how Spotify, you know, I hate the software, but I think it exists in an interesting <laughs> space. I mean, there's No, there's I'm not so saying that there is improvements, and certainly Rhapsody also has, I'm not saying that that isn't I, true, but... I, it, I think this, I mean, this gets to a great point. I, Katie talks about the CD and pulling out the sleeve, and that was one thing that really drove engagement, right? I mean, sort of you go and you do it, or you're sitting in a room, going through albums with your friends. That's now changed, right? The products and the technology have moved us to a point where one of my most, uh, quite frankly, when people say social discovery, right? on Facebook, right? And everybody's seeing the stream of, you know, hear this friend's listen to some song that you really don't care about, right? That, that's, that, that loses the point of social discovery. The most powerful social discovery mechanism that, that I enjoy now 
is if you have people over, you're actually face-to-face. -face. I mean, define social, not behind a computer screen or on, a, on an iPhone or your Android phone. But you take, out your, you take out your iPad and it's got the Sonos controller on it. And you've got access to, you know, millions of songs on demand. And you have access to everybody there at that party with their own musical taste. And a song's playing and somebody grabs the iPod, the iPad and says, no, this is what I'm going to play next. And the excitement almost becomes hey, what is this, what's going to trigger something and you go from genre to genre? Yeah, I've had that that's, that's a, a powerful experience yeah. that will stick with those people as you, as you learn that. So that's, that's, that's a part of social discovery you can't ignore. On the service side, this is what's going to help move the industry forward. We are nowhere near where we need to be in terms of innovation around the creating the cool experiences for customers and music fans that is going to you know, keep them you know, listening to music and having, you know, getting those feelings about hearing a song that really moves them. I mean, we've but got pretty I mean, good, I mean, we've got I, pretty I, good access and pretty good sequencing and, and pretty good multi-device. So you're, we're there with a lot, and that, all that stuff was huge issues for the last five years. I, I'm not on the panel anymore with saying, I wish I could get music. No one says that. So, so I have some disagreement with that. I mean, I, I think that the social, the, the social and the discovery piece of a $2,000 piece of audio equipment in your home is, is certainly there, right? That's the Sonos thing. But if you've ever sat with you know, I have a lot of cousins that are teenagers, and if you've ever sat with them and asked them the question, which I usually do when I'm with them, what are you listening to? What is, what's the first thing they do? They crack open their phone or their iPad or their computer and pull up YouTube. Yep, that's totally And right. if you go and see them with each other, that's all they're doing. They're pulling up YouTube, they're surfing to surfing to surfing. At least they're it's looking the, at the video. That's kind of good. But it, at least they look at visuals. lyric videos, they look at <laughs> cover videos, they look at things, and that to them is the pulling open of an LP and pulling out a vinyl, and that's right. a nostalgic experience for us. I'm 33 years old. I never actually bought vinyl in store. I bought tapes and CDs. And yes, that was a visceral experience, but for me, pulling open and surfing through old replacements live videos and getting to something like that's amazing, that's my experience. My cousins, it's just like video to video to video, and that I mean, works I, for I them. do know one other thing that works, which I Dave wants it. Which is that photography also works. I mean, you're, especially for your live oh, entertainment yeah, business. I mean, if live music totally works, right? What works with live music is when somebody goes to that show and shoots a live picture and then shares it on Facebook, and 3,000 people see that photo, which isn't even the music, but it yeah. looks like a cool guy on stage, and it looks like people are having a good time, and it makes me want to go to the show. So that also is something very few of the music products have photography integrated oh, to. BuzzFeed knows that photography drives hits. Okay, so we have a question over here. Thanks, Ty. Ethan, thank you. No, we, have, we, have, we have Jay Blakesburg, a famous photographer, shooting right now. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, Ethan, you make a lot of sense, thank you. Uh, not that everyone on the panel isn't making some sense. I just wanted to talk a little bit about um, the sort of bubble, you know, these conferences. Uh, everything Ethan just spoke to right there um, is very interesting. I've raised three kids. They're in their early 20s now. They've bought very little music. Uh, everything they did and still do is on YouTube. Um, I've taught thousands of students at the University of Oregon in my digital strategy class and without fail every term we do a poll in the class and we ask them how they get their music. YouTube comes up a clear leader every single time. So, and I also want to point out um, just something I'm worried about when I hear um, anecdotal analytics, anecdotal statistics, uh, anecdotal research. I think uh, we've got to be a little careful. This stuff gets out in the world really quickly. And then I'm going to read about it in DigiDay or something, about how 
people only know eight artists. And we've got to be really careful with that. I, I mean, I'm on a panel myself this afternoon. Um, it would be good to try and get the conversation really tight and really uh, um, point out real statistics and real research. Don't mention big data, because nobody understands that outside this room, if they even understand it here. And then we might be able to get a conversation that really looks at what young people today, who are probably the prime drivers of music um, purchasing, if, if at all, um, the ones who care the most deeply about bands. I can tell you very clearly, Ty, that um, my children probably know thousands of bands, most of whom, uh, amongst their, their cohort right now, the Sasquatch Festival uh, sold out immediately based on not even knowing who was playing, just trusting the organizers at Live Nation to put a great bill together. They appear to have done that. That's a social experience. Four days of camping and going nuts. Whether they'll share that beyond just ridiculous drunk photos all weekend, <laughs> I don't know. But, um, the, you know, there's so much going on outside the room here that we've got to try and sort of bring it in. So thanks for listening to me. I, I'm, I don't want to be... No, I think, that, I think that's well said. I mean, I think the reality is, I think that was more just an overall frustration, and maybe not for kids as much as, I certainly have a 13-year-old son, and he knows quite a few artists, but in general, music's become more, less central. What I really want to say is, seemingly less central to one's life, maybe more utilized in one's life, which is strange, in other words. So that's a kind of a, an issue, and that really, we were talking a lot about this, which is just the general digital distraction of everyone to go do all kinds of different things. And, and you know, what does that really mean for, for an art form and for something that we're trying to you know, hook up computers to? So question back here. I just wanted to touch on the, like I, I think you all, like most of you sort of mentioned this idea of having this rich experience with music and how that's sort of faded and, uh, and how maybe we, it's something we should bring back and I, I was curious if, if that's actually the case, if it's something that you feel um, that we should bring back, that there is room for this rich experience with, uh, with new music you get. Because I feel like back you know, in the days of, of tapes and vinyl, there were a lot fewer artists to choose from. And so there was, it was a big deal to come home with an album and go through it. But now there is so much music. And, and with things like Spotify and audio, it's so easy to get it that I don't think anybody has the time to actually do that. Even if you're a huge fan of an artist, um, I would like, I mean, I, What I would say is that art, I think the main issue really is that artists aren't just their music. In fact, many artists, the music is a very small portion of what they are. Who they are as a person and what they do in the world is much larger than actually their music. And so, so and many artists are multidimensional. So the question really is, it's who they are, what they look like, who they hang out with, what they say, and yes, where they play and who they play with. But the reality is it's very hard to get a sense of that rest of the artist from just the sound. I guess I would, I would equate it similar to like books in that um, with, the with the invention of the printing press, people were afraid of, you know, like handwritten books were going to go away. And there was this big, big deal that you would lose that kind of nice, like this beautiful kind of handwritten book for these cheap copies you could make with a printing press. And like there's this fear of technology, which is it's, it's sort of like happening again, with, like happening with music. And I think people are afraid of it, but it's not, like, do you, I, I guess, like, I don't there see There are some good back. trends. I mean, people are getting vinyl, and also, you know, Jay's here. Photographers are really embracing the digital world, and the archives of photography are becoming available through services, and those will get into these music services. And the music services themselves are no longer worried just about the reach and the catalog. They've got the catalog. They've got the music. They've got the algorithms. Now they're trying to work on the experience and engaging the consumers and the right business models to engage 
it's tough to engage kids to come from YouTube, which is free essentially, to something where they have to pay. If I, if I could cut in here, um, I think I want to object to the idea that music is becoming less rich. It's it's be, it's changing, and it's changing. Like I think YouTube, like discovering music through YouTube and Pandora and Rhapsody and wherever you get it, like that's rich in a way it wasn't before. Twenty-two years ago. I couldn't use my phone and text my friend and send them uh, Harlem Shake. <laughs> like, I couldn't do that. Right now I can do that in seconds, and now they're enjoying the music that I'm enjoying. So, like... That richness doesn't come from the artist. That's, like, that's strictly richness from the technology. Yeah, I, I just think, I, I think we should embrace the change and that music is engaging in ways that it wasn't before. And, that, and I think that's a good thing. And, and, and I think it's also okay for us to yearn for, like, you know digging through vinyl and, you know, enjoying album art and we can still do those things. Those things haven't been destroyed from our world, but there's new interesting ways in which we can engage with music that we couldn't do. Uh, John, you want to give like the final comment? Because yeah, I think the, we're getting to the end of the I think this gets to the point here is it and yeah, Ethan, as you said, you're right. It's not just the, you know, high end audio equipment, but it is the kid sitting in the back seat, you know, with YouTube plugged into the car stereo. This happened to me on Saturday. Right, and he's got that going, and he's going through, and you know, it was a, it was kind of an interesting discovery moment because it went from Tyler the Creator to the guy wants to listen to Ray Charles. I've got a woman, right? <laughs> I just my head spun, right? At that point, the I, when I talk about innovation, and I think whereas we started the panel off, and what what does discovery really mean, and should we really be talking about discovery? I think the new kind of the new word we're going to see coming out is going to be more about curation. Those kids that are looking up something on YouTube and listen, they're bouncing from video to video, you know, song to song, what do they do with it after that? It becomes transient. So the focus of, you know, what the music service needs to be to create these experiences that pull people in however they're discovering music, whether it's YouTube, whether it's Pandora, whether they've matched a song with, you know, Shazam, Soundhound, or Rhapsody Music Match, does it easily allow them then to curate that music, save it to where they want to save it, so they can then re-experience it and have it in a way they can share with their friends, uh, listen to it when they want to when they want to sit back and just re-experience it. So, using technology to innovate to you know make sure music is always accessible, something you've retrieved and you've curated, is 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 what's going to help move the industry forward. Shame. I would say just as um, important as these curators is also helping the music fans find these curators as well because you know we hear that over and over again recently about you know curators are the way that we're going to um, discover more music and I think that's a great thing but we need help in finding those curators because you know to me Facebook Connect it it doesn't do a great job of helping me find music from my friends because we just don't share enough in terms of taste. Um, but if you can match people uh, to other people that are similar to you or are helping you to discover music, that's going to be more and more important as more and more people are seen as tastemakers. It doesn't have to be, you know, Nick Harcourt from KCRW. It can be some guy who's, you know, living halfway across the country that you don't know, but he might be a tastemaker to you um, because he's helping you discover music. And so if we can do a better job connecting each other and connecting each other to playlists and curation, then um, we're ultimately going to have better music experiences across the board. And, and there's a, there's a, Third party here, we've got people who love to enjoy music. We've got 
curators, and then there's the artists. I think as an industry, we haven't done a great job at giving artists platforms for connecting with the right audience for them. Didn't we give them a stage? <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> we haven't talked about live, so. Yeah, we should talk, just say one thing about live, which is, which we gotta go, which is the really the, <laughs> since that's such a huge part of this, and, and the discovery experience there is, is different because you have to commit to a ticket and have to go see something. You know, how does that work? Uh, it, it's, it's not as much different as you would think. It's just uh, the payoff's better. In that, you know, discovery on live is still heavily driven by advertising, by, you know, push marketing. And then the 10% the or so that is off nascent discovery is usually socially related because most people go to shows in groups and we do have data on this, I just don't have the hard figures, but the younger the audience is, the, the bigger the group size is. Um, well, which is one of the reasons like festivals are just taking off. I mean, there's a new festival every weekend because this format works, and it's, yeah, it's also it's, a discovery mechanism, and it goes back to why Dave's kids are going to Sasquatch. I yeah, mean, it's a curatorial mechanism, and it's a social cur curation. And I mean, if you look at the root of live, you're paying money to get locked into a room, essentially. And where the payoff for what you're paying money to doesn't come for a couple hours after you get there. So it's, it's a huge investment and a huge leap of faith assumption. So discovery becomes very, a lot less important than social cueing in terms of, of, of who you're with and what the experience will be like. Um, so I always look at live as kind of like the last holdout in terms of what you can't fake in terms of data or kind of a self-normalized data stream. Right. Because it's like once you put somebody on stage and you darken the room, there's really no getting around the fact that something has to happen. And right. then it shouldn't be a surprise that live is, in essence, the economic model going forward for the entire industry. So. Yeah, there's, there's that or brand worry. sponsorship, one of the two. And if, Ty, if I can just zoom way back out on the tech aspect of, of the theme here, music tech, we, we are at the intersection being music and all of the, the discussion of the functionality behind discovery, what's the value proposition, we just come away realizing that music is emotive and emotional. So while Google now will be a phenomenal scenario where it will know what I want, there's something ultra narcissistic and absolutely farming me into a filtered little experience, which is gonna be incredibly convenient. But I'd love to wager that we in the music industry will buck that trend by enabling serendipity and to end it back on a positive note for discovery versus I w I w we started a little bit bashing discovery. I think discovery might actually be the holy realm of, of having that intersection be truly magnificent, intersection of technology and the emotional humanity aspect of what this thing music does for us. All right, well nicely said. Okay, well, I think we're, we're, we're down to the very end here. I think the, the closing comments are, Discovery today may be a little bit disappointing to start with Ethan's viewpoint, uh, which is that maybe some of the tools that have been out there, it's been a science experiment. But the reality is the process of engaging people in new music and their experiences is something we all want to do, and we're all working to try to do that. On the live side, we talked a little bit, about, only a little bit about that. We haven't connected the live side that well with the services side. It's, it's just starting, I guess that's what your job is. But the reality is, is that <laughs> that's something that we really need to do a better job of. We need some better technology tools for that. We don't have really, you know, set lists. Like, we don't have those. We don't have all that stuff. Yeah, set lists are time delayed, and that's the unfortunate aspect. The best bands don't have set lists before a show. We so. need to fix that with technology. I've got to get going on that. 
Ask right. Dave Allen about <laughs> fixing sound. All right. Well, I want everyone to give a, a round of applause to our panelists and thank everyone. It's a really great panel today. I hope you guys enjoy SF Music Tech and go out and make things happen. Thank you. <laughs>